turn back in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 18 today. I titled uh, this message, A Forgiveness Culture. Um, We live in a culture that is a cancel culture. And so I wanted us to see what God's perspective is and how we're supposed to live our lives. In 1976, Holocaust survivor Simon Wiesenthal wrote a book called The Sunflower. He was a Jew under the Germans during Hitler's reign. He was a prisoner in a concentration camp. And one day he was assigned, because all of the prisoners had tasks, he was assigned a duty to perform, and that was to clean out the garbage from a barn in the middle of the concentration camp. This barn was turned into a hospital for the SS German soldiers who were wounded. Towards the evening, when he was fulfilling his duties and cleaning out the rubbish that, in that place, a nurse took him by the hand and led him to a bed where there was lying a young SS trooper. The story goes that the young man was 21 years old. The biographer says his face was bandaged with pus-soaked rags, eyes tucked somewhere beneath, behind the gauze. He grabbed Wiesenthal's hand and clutched him and said he had to talk to a Jew. He could not die before he confessed the sins that he had committed against helpless Jews, and he had to be forgiven before he died. And so he told the trooper, uh, Wiesenthal, his sad tale, how he belonged to this battalion that had gunned down many Jews, men, women, and children. And on one occasion, a number of them were trying to escape from a house that the troopers had set on fire, and when they ran for their lives, this soldier and his troops gunned them down. Wiesenthal listened to this dying man's story, first the story of his youth, his innocent youth, and then the story of his participation in evil in the massacre of the Jews. And after hearing the story, Wiesenthal pulled his hand away and said no. The biographer said he jerked his hand out of the dying SS trooper's hand and walked out of the barn. No word was spoken. No forgiveness was given. But he was not sure if he did the right thing. And he's written his own story in the book called The Sunflower. And the book ends with this question. What would you have done? Thirty-two prominent people, mostly Jewish, contributed their answers to Wiesenthal's question. What would you have done? Most said he did the right thing. He should not have forgiven this SS trooper. It would not have been fair. And here are some of their answers. One said, what should a soldier who committed multiple atrocities expect a quick word of forgiveness on his deathbed? Another stated, what right had Wiesenthal to forgive the man for evil he had done to other Jews? And if Wiesenthal forgave the soldier, he would be saying that the Holocaust was not so evil. One respondent said this, let the SS trooper go to hell. These words are far from what the Lord Jesus asked us to do. The Lord asks us to do something that is completely counterculture, that is sacrificial. He asks us to do something that is extremely difficult. He asks us to do something that will take something of a miracle in our lives, but is, but is absolutely necessary. And he asks us to do something that he has modeled for us. And that is to forgive, to forgive. Our passage today is in the middle of a section in chapter 18 where Jesus is talking to his disciples about having a childlike faith. In verse 3 of chapter 18, he says, We enter the kingdom of God when we are 
children with humility. In verse 7 through 9, we are to be protected like children, not doing anything to lead unbelievers to sin or cause them to harm in their lives. In verse 10 through 14, we are to be cared for like a little child. If one is lost, we are to seek and find them. And then in verse 15 and 20, it provides the big background for our text. And this is God's telling us how we're supposed to face sin specifically in the church congregation. He's going to teach us how we are supposed to respond. And this is of the utmost importance because we all know we have been sinned against. Could have been this week. A boss said something to you or made your life difficult than you should. Maybe it was a spouse that betrayed your trust. Maybe you're suffering harsh criticism or personal attacks from family members. I would say it's probably harder for, to forgive smaller offenses when they come from your family and your church family than it is outside. You see, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 20, Jesus teaches us what initially forgiveness is supposed to look like. And I want to summarize it real quickly. He says, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault. So the onus is put on the person who has been sinned against. If someone sins against you, you go and tell them their fault. You see, the topic is, I want you to know, it's about sin, not about feelings or irritations or unmet expectations. It's someone has sinned against you. They have failed God's commandments. They have sinned against God and against you. When this happens, we're told by Jesus that we are supposed to go to them and tell them their fault. We're supposed to go to them and tell them not to shame them. We're supposed to tell them not to win an argument. We're going to tell them because they're saying, what we're saying is their sin is primarily against God. And we are concerned because if they don't change, there's going to be friction in their relationship with God and with others. Our purpose is that we want them to be restored back to this right relationship. But in that time, and it goes on, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You see, if it doesn't work out, you need to go and with witnesses. And again, the purpose is confrontation, not gossip, because the sin is destroying the unity that's in the church. If this doesn't work, you're supposed to take the offense to the church leaders that they may deal with it. And sadly, in some cases, if repentance is not met, then this person would be sent out of the church, but with the purpose of they would see the seriousness of their sin and they would come back. Now, with this backdrop, this is what makes Peter ask his question in our passage in verse 21. And Peter says this, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You see, when Peter hears verse 15 to 20, he knows that Jesus is doing some things that are incredible. His grace and his love. He's a disciple, so he sees the people. Matthew, the tax collector, is with him. So I guess he gets it. He understands that we're supposed to be gracious. But Peter has a feeling to himself that there's got to be a limit to God's forgiveness. There just has to be. And so he says seven times. The rabbinic view at the time was that you only forgave someone three times. Uh, it says this, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven, the fourth time he is not forgiven. He understands now that 
Peter does, that retaliation is not the right path for a disciple. Rather, forgiveness is the way. But he sees it as something that should be practiced in moderation. So for him saying seven times, he's being really generous. Peter is not ready for the Lord's response in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus completely obliterates his number. He says 77 times. Some translations say 70 times 7. What is meant by this section is that when your brother sins against you, you confront them about their sin. They are repentant. You must forgive them, and there are no limits to it. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 7, verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Later, we're going to talk more on what the definition of forgiveness is, but I want to get this point across. Christians are part of a we are supposed to be ambassadors of forgiveness. Christians are not supposed to be proponents of a cancel culture. Imagine with me now what a world would look like if forgiveness did not exist. Imagine yourself holding on to bitterness and anger towards every person that has hurt you, even a little in your life, throughout the entire course of your life. Would you have any friends? I mean, you would remember everything they've done, every joke they said, every time they forgot a special day, every time they hurt you from your childhood till your adult. You would remember everything, and it would just be running constantly in your mind. How long do you think relationships would last? Could people even be married? In fact, I think marriage would cease to exist because two sinners coming together, no forgiveness, there's no marriage, there's no kids. Now picture this, a world where forgiveness doesn't exist. What would your Christmas and Thanksgiving be like with your families? Whew. What would it be like with, if your dad was still mad at your sister because he didn't feel respected 30 years ago? Okay, mom is still mad at the sister because when she lived at the house, sorry, Lynette, uh, you, you used to take 45-minute showers. That's my sister. Um, your uncle is mad at your aunt for burning the rice at a meal. Grandpa is mad at mom because of her sassy attitude, even though that's when she was a kid. It'd be chaos. Imagine a world where forgiveness didn't exist. Imagine everyone that you have hurt being bitter towards you. You are walking into the church building and you may have harmed someone and they're not even hiding their resentment of you. They're just staring at you, glaring at you, saying, and you know inside they're thinking, I just hate your stinking guts. Imagine this. Every single person that you have harmed is bitter towards you and scowls at you. Has there ever been someone you let down, forgotten about, offended, looked the wrong way at? They would all still be mad at you. Imagine the same for everyone who thought that you intended wrong for them. If forgiveness could not take place between us as individuals, our world would be toxic. What would our communities look like? What would friendships happen? Actually, we live in a culture like that today in our cancel culture. Now imagine there was no forgiveness for your sins and everything that you have ever done to defend God or others 
would be held against you forever. And when I mean held against you, the list that is literally miles and miles long would be there for you to see all the time. Every thought, every word, every deed, the effects of every moral failure would be perpetual. Guilt would be eternal. In a world without forgiveness, there is no such thing as joy or happiness. At any degree, there would be no freedom or family or brotherhood of any type. Now, again, when you step into our cancel culture, in my opinion, we're not supposed to be like that, but that's what the cancel culture is. To be canceled happens when a person does or says something that runs afoul of our current cultural preferences. We shut them down with names and personal attacks. If she's a musician, we call for boycotts of their music. If they're an athlete, we burn their jersey and posting the bonfire on social media. And if they're a Christian, yes, even if they're a Christian, we question their Christianity out loud. How can they be a Christian and do? How can they really be a Christian and do? How can they... This is what it is. We live in a toxic cancel culture where liberals cancel conservatives and conservatives cancel liberals, where black people cancel white people and white people cancel black people. Young people are canceling old people and old people are canceling young people. Church members are canceling one another. Cancel culture is toxic and should not be a part of this church. We have to be different than the world. But sadly, the culture invades itself. Cancel culture, I'll define it as the following. A mistake or sin is now perpetually unforgivable because it's not simply a guilty act. Rather, the mistake or sin defines the individual's identity, okay? Turning them into a shameful person so someone gets canceled. This act is not what they did. Now it's who they are. Now, if you can imagine, we are defined by a act that we've done. So for the rest of the life, that sin that you commit, that's who you are. That, that can't be for children of God. In our culture, we cannot. Our culture defines that our last sin, our latest sin is who we are. Social recovery is rare, but that's not the culture that Jesus has come to establish. Jesus, after all, was friend of sinners. He welcomed the canceled people, former tax collectors, religious fanatics, prostitutes were among his followers. Jesus operated by, not by this cancel culture mantra. Think about it. Thomas, who doubted him, would have been canceled in our culture. His half-brother James, who refused to believe him that he was the Messiah, would have been canceled. And the apostle Peter, who's asking this question later on, will deny Jesus Not once, not twice, three times, he would have been canceled. The world says cancel, but Christians must be Christ-like and different. Peter thought there were limits to God's grace, but Jesus wanted to show him that is not the case. So let's look at this parable as Jesus states to us and makes this case how we need to be ambassadors of a forgiveness culture. Verse 23 Therefore, the kingdom of heaven must be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. 
We have a king who has a kingdom, and he has entrusted his servants with money to carry out the functions of the kingdom. This person would have potentially been a regional governor or regional leader, and they were responsible for giving an accounting for how they use their money to show their fiscal responsibility in advancing the kingdom agenda. Verse 24, when this king began to settle, one was brought to him who owned 10,000 talents. The servant owed an impossible amount. A talent, a talent is a measurement of gold, silver, or copper. It varied but was between 60 to 90 pounds per talent. 10,000 talents would weigh 204 metric tons or 403,000 pounds. That's about the weight of the Statue of Liberty. That's what the man owed. Depending on which metal was used, a talent would be about 6,000 denarii, which would make the first servant's debt 60 million denarii. An average wage of one denarii a day would require a person to work 164,000 years to pay off the debt. The point to be made is the amount owed by this man would never be paid. In the same way when Jesus was saying 77 times he was to say the amount to forgive, this number is given us to show the immensity of the debt. Verse 25, and since he could not pay the debt, obviously, his master owed, ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and a payment to be made. Mind you, that payment would never be made. Since that could never be paid, the king was going to sell his, sell his family and his wife just to get a smell ounce of what he deserved. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. I can imagine he's literally at his master's legs. He's on his knees, dropped down, grabbing him and saying, please, please forgive me. Forgive me of this debt. I will repay it. Please, please don't do this to me. Please be patient with me. Notice, though, he doesn't say, don't send me to prison. He knew he owed the debt. He knew he deserved the punishment. He was asking just for time to pay it off, but he wouldn't have been able to. And this is the thing that's crazy. And I know the disciples, when they saw this, would have been startled. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. The king had pity on the servant. He was moved by his expression of sorrow. He was moved by his repentance. And he did the unthinkable. He forgave the debt. He released him from his responsibility. He freely forgave. That was all. Do you notice there was no conditions there, no hesitation. It was an act of pure grace. And this is the end of Act 1. Jesus is illustrating forgiveness for us. The parable is intended to provoke our hearts to praise God for his mercy and grace. Mercy, not getting what we rightfully deserve and grace, getting what we do not deserve. We are like the servants, brothers and sisters. We owe a debt that we could never afford. But God saved us from hell. He has delivered us from the wrath. That is God's mercy. God's great. The debt is forgiven. The servant has been set free, and that is our case. We have a relationship with the Father. We are the servants that own a debt, but too often we don't realize how 
totally depraved and sinful we are. As King David said, we were born in corruption. In sin did our mothers conceive us. We were blind to the gospel, enemies of God. Our hearts were deceitful and desperately wicked. Our sinful nature, our evil thoughts and our actions. There was nothing good in us. Nothing. And yet God, who is rich in mercy, forgave us. We are without hope, without God, but God's grace was greater. And our forgiveness should be patterned after our Savior's. So we have the end of Act 1. This servant has been forgiven of the great debt, the debt he could never pay, the debt he could never afford. And then we get to another account, Act 2 in this story, verse 28. And when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. It was average someone would make a hundred denarii per day. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. This would have startled the disciples as Jesus is telling him, this man who had been forgiven of a debt that would have taken 164,000 years to pay is choking someone literally who it would take 100 days to pay off his debt. Notice what the pastor says. He went out and found this fellow servant. This does not make sense. Why would he be searching and looking for someone? Why would he be doing that when his debt was canceled? Taking the man by the throat and choking him, literally putting his hands around his neck and choking the life out of him. Now, I see in this context here a Christian going to one another and demanding vengeance, demanding justice now. Christians, even Christians in our church, can struggle with it. Do you have someone who says something to you or someone who did something to you that you do not like? Can you think of them now? How many times have you metaphorically choked them in your mind? How many times have you thought evil thoughts about them? How many times have you given them the cold shoulder? How many times have you been wicked? We don't realize, oh, we look at this guy, how dare he do that? That's inside of us. That is inside of us. Christians are not immune to this problem. Jesus is trying to give us a warning. Our flesh does not want to forgive. Our flesh inflates our own righteousness and deflates others. We walk around in life like we have arrived. Honestly, sometimes I think for myself and other Christians, we walk around and we do not look in the mirror at all. We wake up in the morning, we might have crusties on our eyes, we might have drool coming out of our mouth, but we think, oh, I look good. And that's how we do with our lives. Sinfully, we think, I've arrived. I've made it. Oh, the furthest thing from the truth. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Isn't it interesting? The same thing that this forgiven servant did, fell down on his knees, begging and pleading with his master to forgive him, His fellow servant did the same, falling down, begging for forgiveness, begging that he will repay it. And again, 100 denarii, it would take maybe 100 days to pay off potentially. Is he going to show grace in this situation? Like this is the moment. He's going to have flashbacks to his uh, time where he was forgiven so much. This is it. This is the climax is building up. Wrong. Verse 30. He refused 
and went and threw him in prison until he should pay the debt. The same prison that he should have been in, he did the unthinkable and threw his brother into prison. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They literally probably are thinking, what in the world is wrong with you? Haven't you been, given, been forgiven of so much? Like, are you thinking, did you forget? They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Notice the king's sharp rebuke. You are wicked. You are a hypocrite. I forgave you all your debt. The debt that you would never have paid in your lifetime, the debt that would have cost you your children and your wife, and even your grandchildren would have been able to pay off. I forgave you of all this debt. How can you not do this? And here's what the master says, verse 33. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy? Jesus also says in Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. The grace that we have received should be extended to others as well. Where does this lack of forgiveness come from? Where does it happen that we are so quickly able to literally put our knees on someone's neck and, and strangle them? Where does this come from in Christianity? Where does it come from that we have repented of our sin and been forgiven, and yet we forget we, that we've been forgiven and we take it out on other people? Four reasons I want to give you real quickly. One, we have a wrong definition of forgiveness. Secular definition of forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is stopping a feeling of anger or resentment towards someone for an offense, flaw, or mistake. It's, I don't ever think I'll forgive this person because of how they've treated me. Or it can also be defined to cease to feel resentment. Forgiveness of this world is about feelings. It's about emotions. But that's not what forgiveness is about. It's an action. It's a commitment to pardon the person of their sin. Sometimes we're not able to forgive and we withhold forgiveness because we think it's excusing. But forgiveness is not excusing sin. It's not implying that what you did wasn't really wrong or you couldn't help it. Forgiveness is the opposite. When we forgive, and you notice in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, there, the confrontation is going down because someone has sinned against you. You have been sinned against. Go to them and confront them of their sin because you want them to repent. So, in fact, forgiveness is taking what they've done to you seriously. It, it's granting forgiveness. Forgiveness is saying this. We both know what you did was wrong and without excuse, but since God has forgiven me, I can forgive you. Christian forgiveness can be defined by this. A commitment by the offended party to pardon graciously the repentant for moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Another reason why we don't um, forgive in this culture, why we struggle, a me-focused culture. The first cause of our lack of forgiveness um, was talking about a wrong definition, but now we have a me-centered culture. 
We are in a society that doesn't say what's best for the community and then in the church, what's best for the church family? We have a society that says you must be true to your heart. Be true to yourself. You just do you. Do what makes you feel good. You need to understand there is a chasmic shift that's going on in our society that says things have to align with your own personal identity and personal liberty. You are entitled to your own opinion and views, and it doesn't matter what the church or anyone else thinks about it. And this me focus world, this sick, selfish thinking has infected our church family. Instead of taking a family approach to sin, we take the cancel culture approach. And so instead of being people of the world, we are robots of this world, and we handle sin just like the world, okay? America, we can't even have the ability to forgive because it's seen as too much of a sacrifice. I'm giving too much up. Your happiness, your needs, your desires, they always come first. Our culture prizes uh, self-fulfillment over self-sacrifice. We either want revenge or withdrawal rather than forgive. Next one. We have an insufficient view of our depravity. One author, Miroslav Wolf, put it this way. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. We, we don't think we are that type of sinners. The head servant owed 10,000 th- talents. His brother in Christ owned, owed 100 denarii, but he thinks in his mind that he has arrived. So then we would say, okay, what talent sinner am I? Well, maybe, maybe, Pastor Roy, I'm a five-talent sinner. I don't do what they do, but do you gossip? Are you backbiting, attacking people? Oh, okay, okay, Pastor Lardy, I, I, maybe I do some of those. But let's say I'm a 50-talent sinner, okay? I, I'm just passionate about life. You have fits of anger, strife, jealousy, uh, Pastor Lord, but it, we keep making excuses for ourselves. Making excuses for ourselves. Another reason why we cannot forgive, this is the main one, I think. We try to do forgiveness on our own. We try to do forgiveness on our own. Here is what you and I need to understand there is no way in the world that we can forgive others if we don't get God's strength. Okay? There is no way in the world that we will have the capacity to forgive other people of their sins if we don't go to the Lord. We need to do a prayer something like this. God, I can't forgive in my own strength. In fact, I don't want to forgive them, at least until he has suffered for what he has done to me. He does not deserve to get off easy. Everything in me wants to hold it against him and keep a high wall between us because I never want them to hurt me again. But Lord, your word warns me that unforgiveness will eat away at my soul like cancer. Unforgiveness will build a wall between me and my brother and me and you. More importantly, Lord, you have shown me that you made the ultimate sacrifice. You've given up your son in order to forgive me. So, Lord, please help me to forgive. Please change my heart and soften it. I no longer want to hold this sin against him. Change me, Lord, so that I can forgive. We need the Lord's strength. 
So how do we go about it? Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, talks about four ways of resolving conflict and sin. First one we need to do is this, glorify God. So someone sinned against you. How are you supposed to respond? The first thing, are you glorifying God? How can you please and honor God in this situation? How can you please and honor God in how you handle the sin of your brother or sister in Christ? If you're airing out your grievances on social media, you're not about reconciliation. Nah. If you are, you're interested in retaliation, if you're not desiring to meet people face to face and you're desiring to gossip and spread it around, you're not interested in restoration. You're interested in retaliation. How can we honor God in this situation? How can we please him? Because remember, we live our lives for Jesus Christ. So in everything that we do, we want to honor him. So we need to make sure first we desire to glorify God. Two, we got to get this log out of our eye. Let's make sure what is actually happening, the grievance that we have isn't minor, but it's actual sin. Maybe you can turn to a chapter or verse to define where that sin is. It's important. Our cancel culture days, we have no tolerance for people making mistakes. We don't have long fuses. We have short fuses, and we explode rapidly. We forget that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that passage that they say is for marriage is actually for a church community that's in dysfunction, and we should bear all things, believe the best in all things, hope all things, endure all things. We should be gracious because God has been gracious with us. We need to stop putting our knee on someone else's neck and remember what God has done for us. So pause and think about why you're angry. Maybe there's some offenses to overlook. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is a glory to overlook an offense. So when is it right to overlook an offense? Is this offense seriously, or when is it right to confront? Is this offense seriously dishonoring God? Has it permanently damaged a relationship? Is it seriously hurting other people? Is it seriously hurting the offender himself? So glorify God. Get the log out of your own eye. Gently restore is the next one. You should go if someone sinned against you and lovingly confront them. It talks about that in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 18, verse 15 through 20, that we should do that if someone is sinned. But we have this mindset that we're confronting them not so that we win a battle because we want to win them back to God. That is our goal, not so that I am right, but that God is glorified in all of this. So you confront with the mindset of reconciliation, not condemnation, not airing out your grievances, You see their sin as serious, and you're concerned what it will do to their testimony. Then the fourth, go and be reconciled. If they repent, forgive. If they repent, forgive as God in Christ's sake has forgiven you. If they don't repent, still have the spirit of forgiveness. We as Christians have experienced the greatest forgiveness of all, and yet we often fail to forgive others. We can't say, I forgive you, but stay out of my life. God expects believers to forgive others in the same way he forgave them. Notice, not only did Christ forgive us, but he restored this relationship that was torn apart. 
You see, in this parable, the king absolved the debt. The king forgave. The king didn't say, what you have done is really bad. I never want to do anything with you again. No, he said, what you do was horrible, but I'm going to absorb the loss. So it is true, forgiveness is a sacrifice. But it's not something that you do in your own strength. It's something that you do with God's strength. Paul stressed this in Ephesians uh, in Colossians, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Or in Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has complained against you, forgiving each other. As the Lord is forgiving you, so you must also forgive. Let me finish with this story from Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom and her sister were arrested for concealing Jews in their homes during the Nazi occupation of Holland. There had been a man who was a guard at one of the concentration camps where he was sent, and he was in a church one Sunday where she was speaking. It was a church in music. This is from her uh, biography. It was a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in an overcoat, a brown, a brown felt that clutched between his hands, People were filing in and out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of the wooden chairs to the door and rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message of forgiveness. It was the truth that was most needed to be heard in the bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, she says, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn face stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, silently collected their wraps in silence and left the room. And that's when she saw a man working his way forward. One moment when she saw him, She noticed him. She noticed who he was. And it all came back rushing into her mind. In a huge room with a harsh overlight, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of naked women walking past this man as he's humiliating them, and Corey could see her sister frail ahead of her, her ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin how thin her sister was. Betsy and her sister were arrested, and they were in this concentration camp. And notice what this man said to her. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who have spoken so lively on forgiveness, fumbled in my pocket, but rather than to take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner amongst the thousands of women's? But I remembered him, everything about him. She remembered how he tormented her. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. He didn't remember her. But since that time, I went on and I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I, I like to ask from your lips, could you forgive me? And she says this, and I stood here, I who sinned, had every day to be forgiven and could not. Her sister had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? 
It could not have been seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to her it seemed like hours, as he wrestled with the most difficult question in her mind. She knew what she had to do. She knew God's commandment, and yet it was so hard. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness and remained invalids, it was as simple and horrible as that. And as she stood there, tears began to go down her eyes. And she said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. Church family, we may have issues and difficulties that are going on in the world, in our families, even in our flock here today. We are people who have been forgiven of so much, so much, more than we can even imagine. We need to be like Jesus and show the world what a forgiveness culture looks like and not be part of this cancel culture. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, I thank you so much for your grace. Lord, if you just had all the account of my sins put up, Lord, I'd just be ashamed. And Lord, I'm just so thankful that you do not treat me based on my sin. I'm not defined by what I have done. I am defined by whose I am, and I am yours. Lord, I pray that you be with us all, Lord. There may be family members. There may be co-workers. There may be people that have sinned, even grievous sins against us, Lord. You ask us to forgive. doesn't excuse them of what they have done, but it is what Christ has done for us, is saying that we will let you take care of the issue, Lord. But we're going to forgive like you have forgiven us. So, God, I just ask you today that you would help us to love and to be different from this world. In your name, amen.